Hello, everyone. This is episode 20 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Maria Konnikova. She is the author of The Confidence Game, The Biggest Bluff, which is coming out quite soon, and a book that I have just ordered, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. That one sounds interesting. You'll have to tell me, tell me about that a bit later. She's a contributing writer for The New Yorker, and she hopefully is going to continue as a professional poker player. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll see what the world has to say about that. You wrote the book, you finished it quite a while ago, the way books go. There's a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross. You've dotted all the I's and you've crossed all the T's and now it's, now it's time to promote. Does it seem, how does it seem in your own mind? Was this a long process? Uh, where, where are we? It was a very long process and a process that I never could have foreseen. Um, it was one of these things where I conceived of the project back in 2016. Um, and it was supposed to be, you know, a one year thing where I you know, team up with Eric Seidel. He teaches me, I play the main event of the World Series and we have a book. And obviously none of that happened other than the fact that I worked with Eric Seidel. That was the only part of the plan that actually, that actually was the same as my initial, um, as my initial plan for the book. And it ended up just going in an entirely different direction. I never could have foreseen um, how the journey would go. The fact that I would you know, fall in love with this game and actually show some sort of aptitude in it. Um, I never considered going pro. You know, if you had told me, you know, Maria, in a few years, you're going to be a professional poker player. You're going to be a member of Poker Stars Team Pro. You're going to be doing all of these things. I would have said, ha, 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 um, because it's really not anything I was ever interested in. Excuse the sirens. We're in the middle of New York here. <laughs> it became a very, very different book. Luckily, I had I have an amazing editor who just let me do my own thing and said, you know, if the book's a few years delayed, that's fine. Nobody's going to scoop you. It's your own story, right? It's, it's a memoir. It's not like someone's going to write a book about this before you do. So because it wasn't a, news, a newsy subject, it was something that I could do anytime I wanted. But of course, you know, it, it's funny. No one, no one expects to be releasing a book in the middle of a pandemic in the middle of social protests, the likes of which we haven't seen in decades. I mean, that is something that I also could have never predicted. And in a way, the book is actually quite relevant because you know, one of the main themes is chance and learning to deal with the things that we can't predict with uncertainty, with the things we can't control. That was the inspiration for the book. But on the other hand, you know, it feels kind of pointless. Like, what am I doing promoting a book right now? I have a lot to say on these topics. I want to hold off a little bit. If we will, if we will I want to hold off on those a little bit. Um, and uh, there are upsides to, uh, to launching during a, a pandemic. Uh, I've, Such as? I've people, people have more time, right? They're, this is uh, true. Um, I, and I've been reading a lot more during the pandemic and... Uh, you you probably know uh, Emily St. John Mandel. Yep. Seems like a good time for her to launch The Glass Hotel, right? <laughs> her previous book was about a pandemic. It was, yes. 
And it then, was great. Uh, Everyone should go read Oceans. Uh, not Oceans 11. Oh my God, Station Station 11. In my head, I've got all these things, but Station 11 was a wonderful book. So is The Glass Hotel. Emily is an amazing writer. Yeah, I loved both of those books and I would never have discovered them absent the pandemic. Oh. Obviously, Station 11 got a lot of press. It did, yes. Pandemic and I discovered it and I read it and was like, wow. And then got The Glass Hotel and like that maybe even more. So, And no one's sick in The Glass Hotel. Yes. And the Glass Hotel, well, we won't get into it, but it tracks uh, the Madoff scandal pretty well. Mm -hmm. So, so I want to, um, first of all, so what happened was you came in poker for a year and then mm -hmm. everyone in poker gave you a big bear hug and said, wait a minute, you're interested in poker? Come join us for a while. And <laughs> poker stars gave you a bear hug and Seidel and everyone who introduced you, everyone who Seidel introduced you to. So they gave you this big bear hug and they wouldn't let you go. And then a good way of looking years, at it. after three years, you said, uh, all right, I have to, uh, I have to leave you guys and <laughs> go actually do this thing. <laughs> Maybe that's what happened. Until, um, so there is a poker literature and um i would say well there were some there were some very very early examples of your genre um i guess alvarez would be the closest comparison because he has uh a strong literary background um but then um Jim McManus had a lot of yeah. commercial success with Positively Fifth Street. He's, he seemed to sell a lot of copies of that book. I mean, it was on the New York Times <laughs> bestseller list for a long time. I'm sure you probably had it in the proposal somewhere. He, he, um, do you happen to recall, like, has that book sold more than any other poker book? I actually have no idea. I never, I never saw the sales figures. It was a great book. I really enjoyed it. it. And, and I enjoyed Alvarez. You know, I have um, over here, you can't see it. It's out of the shot, but I have two shelves of poker books that I read for. Uh, oh, nice. For well, some of your for favorites. Um, you know, I really, um, I, I'm a big fan of the more literary ones. I mean, I did love um, Alvarez, I loved Positively Fifth Street. I'm looking right now, um, there's a great older one called uh, Memoir of a Gambler that someone recommended to me. That was pretty great. Um, right now, I'm just looking at not strategy books. We're not we're not talking about those, but just kind of the the other the other types of books. So I think those were the ones that really struck me big deal um anthony holden that big was, a, good was one. a great one i was gonna mention that, that yeah one. that was a good one um i mean professor banker suicide king is is very different but it's also a very fun book um i have one i wrote that? it it's called broke a poker novel in 2005 i think that's great yeah it was a lot of fun um i have to read it jesse may shut up and deal is really good i haven't read that one I would strongly, strongly recommend that one. Okay. And I read a lot of strategy books. A lot of strategy books? And what, what were your, your favorites in that? Well, it, you know, honestly, it depends on the stage of my development, right? So at the beginning, you know, Eric gave me, well, had me, had me buy all of the Harrington on Holden books. 
um, which was huge. I mean, it was so that was kind of the foundational stuff that I read. That was the first poker strategy I was exposed to. Um, and then the great thing is I got a chance to actually meet Dan Harrington and talk through all of that with him. And I love him. He's such a great character, such a great guy, just this brilliant mind um, and had so many fascinating insights about life, about the world, about gambling, um, just about how, how everything works. Um, so those were the books that really helped me at the beginning. Um, and then there were other books afterwards that really, that really kind of were, were important. Like Matthew Jonda became like the book that I carried around with me for a very long time to try to, you know, as I got more advanced in my play, both of his books. Um, and, and that was great. Then I actually, I think that you were involved with this one. Let me see. This one's actually on my desk because it was the late, the last one I read. Yeah, that's a great one. book. That's a great book. That might be the the best book out there right now. Yep. So so I try to I've tried to keep current. Okay. So let's jump into the the timing. Yeah. You said you feel a little bit uneasy about about the timing. I do. Um, why? It feels strange to be talking about myself, to be talking about a book when so many other things are happening in the world that are just so pressing and so important. You know, who wants to read about poker um, when people are dying and people are dying from a disease, people are dying in the streets because of police brutality, you know, all of these things happening at once. It just, it puts a lot of things in perspective. You know, I, I do, I do recognize that there are a lot of these themes in the book and that I think it could actually, there, I think that some of the things that I learned and that I try to kind of talk about in the book can help people deal with these sorts of things, but it's, it still feels very small in comparison to what's going on. So let me talk about the book because you uh, sent me an early copy. I was super excited to get it. I read it very quickly. I would say <laughs> it, it's so smooth. And obviously I have a personal interest and I, I know all of the characters. Um, I think I started reading it at like 1130 at night when I was really tired and I read like two thirds of it. And then I finished wow. the remaining third in the morning. It was wow. very smooth and very, very good. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Everyone, everyone will love it. The broad audience will love it. But for, for a poker crowd, it can be tough because they've read, they're so familiar mm -hmm. and, um, you strike the tone just right. Like it's very, very smooth. Um, it will be very popular. Um, so, so I read it and, um, uh, your tone is a little bit apologetic about poker, uh, about <laughs> poker culture, not, not in a bad way, but, but like you recognize the, uh, the absurdity of some of aspects course. of the, of the culture. Um, and it, it really works. Um, cause it is you, it is your, and, and, um, by the same token, I was a little, I was a little surprised by, by that tone. And one thing that's interesting from my personal perspective is I've been around poker for a long time, almost as long as, Eric, um, and I've always recognized the absurdity of it, right? Like from, a, from the clash with 
just playing poker for large amounts of money and it's and then at times when say climate change is becoming more important where you're reading books about it and then you're flying to bahamas to play in a poker tournament (laughs) i've always recognized the absurdity of it but i basically uh reconciled it in my own mind and it 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 is it is seeming like we're getting to a historical time where it's becoming uh a little bit more challenging the 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 poker culture and uh, it will be interesting to see what happens in the next 5 years because one thing that happened with the story of poker is that you I can't explain why this happened right but you went from the mid 2000s which was a boom time in the economy and also a boom time in poker after Chris Moneymaker won the main event in 2003. Um, From say 2003 to 2007, you had this huge poker cultural boom going on at the same time as an economic boom. But Mostly the way that it manifested itself was strictly in terms of bigger numbers, not in terms of bigger game sizes. Mm-hmm. So you just had like the main event, which had been a $10,000 buy-in from its inception, was still a $10,000 buy-in and you just had bigger numbers. $25,000 tournaments were basically unheard of. You had a couple, you had a handful. Um, $100,000 tournaments never except for just TV shenanigans. Uh, <laughs> you, you you basically just had $10,000 tournaments, but your numbers were far bigger. And you didn't, nec- you didn't have more of them. It's just they were, all of them were much bigger. Um, and the game sizes were, you know, they notched up from where they had been, but they didn't, they didn't go into the stratosphere. And, and then something happened like, 2008 onward where you started getting these bigger tournaments. Um, And now we're still in that world of like very big buy-in tournaments where people maybe are selling action, but the stated buy-in is very high. Um, And it just seems like maybe it's reached a point of absurdity where you have a, on the one hand, the, the really big buy-in tournaments and then what's going on in the economy. It seems too much of a disconnect. Yes. <laughs> I'm nodding my head. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it is absurd in some regards. And I do think that there's just, it's not just poker. You know, I think a lot of things are absurd if you start looking at them um, in that light. Um, I do think poker has value inherently. You know, that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book um, as a teaching tool, as a way of helping your mind understand things that are really under important to understand and think more clearly, think better, be a better decision maker outside of poker, which I think will help make the world a better place if people are more rational, if people understand statistics, if people understand probabilities, if people understand emotional management, if people have the tools for mental framing and resilience that will, you know, make them able to see the world in a much more productive light. 
if we learn to tell the difference between, you know, how we play the hand and what the outcome of the hand is, you know, what we are controlling, and then the noise, the variance that's going to happen. These are all tools that I learned from poker, even though I have a PhD in psychology, and I studied decision making, I studied risky decision making. And, you know, I studied self control, I worked with Walter Michelle, who's famous for the marshmallow studies um, of delayed gratification with the little kids who, you know, wait to eat the marshmallow or don't. And the number of minutes that they wait when they're three, four years old predicts all sorts of stuff as they get older. So I've known all of this stuff theoretically. It wasn't until I started playing poker that I was actually able to correct a lot of the biases that I otherwise was perfectly aware of, but didn't have the tools to to conquer. And it's interesting, you know, at the start of this, it wasn't quite the start, but I think it was in May um, when kind of COVID, all the lockdowns were happening. Um, I interviewed Danny Kahneman uh, for The New Yorker, and um, we had a very interesting conversation. And Kahneman obviously is, you know, his whole life has been studying these decision biases, the problems the brain has when it comes to probabilistic thinking. It's what he won a Nobel Prize for. Um, I think the only psychologist to have ever won the Nobel Prize in economics. And, you know, this is something that he's devoted his entire life to. And there was this really fascinating moment in our conversation where he acknowledged that he actually almost got on a plane to France after the pandemic had started because he couldn't wrap his mind around exponential growth. Theoretically, he had all of the tools for it. He kind of, he knew all of these biases, but when it came to actually wrapping his brain around it, he couldn't. Um, and the numbers seemed small and it seemed manageable and it seemed pretty safe. So he said, yeah, you know, I'll go on this trip. And then, and then he realized, wait, this is, this is how it starts. You know, exponential growth means it starts very small, but suddenly we're going to have huge numbers. But the fact that he still struggles with that, you know, even today was very telling. And I think that that's a very common problem. And actually, some of the first people I saw who actually grasped this knew how to think about it clearly and raised alarms very early on were poker players because they were people who actually understood how this works and sensed it intuitively because they had this tool to help them learn what it feels like, you know, what these percentages feel like, what all of these things feel like. That's how the brain learns. That's why we're so bad at probabilities, because normally we don't have that experience. Normally our experiences are lopsided, skewed. We don't get to sample over and over and over. And so I think that for that, poker is actually incredibly relevant and will always stay relevant because these are ways of seeing the world that enable you to see problems, that enable you to figure out how do we solve these problems. So in that sense, I actually think it's a very powerful game. But obviously, you know, when you're talking about million dollar buy-in tournaments, then we're talking about something else. Then you all of a sudden do have a lot of these disconnects. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that it's the same way that there's any profession that's not immediately useful. Like, you know, I'm a writer um, and a poker player, but I've been a writer my whole life. And I've had these moments of saying, like, what am I even doing? You know, I'm writing. I'm not actually doing anything or changing anything. My sister's a doctor. You know, my sister is a neonatologist. She's literally saving lives every single day. There are 
humans alive today who would have been dead without her. And it kind of puts it, puts it in perspective. And there's no way to say that her career doesn't matter. But for a lot of careers and a lot of life choices, you could say, well, how am I really helping? When you got into poker in 2016, or you had familiarity with poker before 2016, but when you... Not really. <laughs> when you get in 2016, it's a bit of an anthropology project along with the <laughs> study of the decision-making. And, and you do learn a lot about decision-making, but you're also observing something. And it's clear that you understand this from the book, but what, what, you're, what you're observing is, um, this is a, a fierce competitive process that has been operating since 2003 yes <laughs> so so it's sort of like if you go to the u.s open watch tennis it's mm -hmm. remarkable that people maintain under pressure incredibly well yes they've got 10,000 people in the stands watching them and even if it's the, their first time playing in the stadium a lot of times they're they're playing great, right? They've got mm -hmm. match point, whatever, they play great. And it seems remarkable because 99% of the people, if they're playing tennis or they're playing golf or whatever under such a situation, they're going to choke under the pressure. Yep. But there's been a selection mechanism in play for a long time. And <clears throat> the people who are playing at the U.S. Open, they don't choke. Yep. Um, in poker... Entering into it in 2016, you're entering into an environment where a selection mechanism has been in play for a long time. And the types of people who have survived, um, it's a strange group, right? <laughs> like it's a, like it's a strange group. And, um, part of it is that well, you, you could go as far as to say that it's a strange group in terms of emotional construction, in terms of the mm -hmm. way that the minds are actually constructed. Like, whatever, the way that most poker players process information is minimum like 5% on the Asperger's spectrum. <laughs> minimum. And then it just kind of goes up from there. But But... There's, they process information in a very logical, rational, dry way. And it's not normal in the sense that like bluffing or responding to bluffing is not emotional and not unnatural in any way. Right. For the best players, I think we need to caveat that. As you get, as, as you get on lower lower levels, it becomes different. And then the um, separation of decision-making from results also becomes second nature. Yeah. Um, which is, I found so entertaining the, uh, the, the bad beat story and where Eric was telling you like <laughs> about the, the, Maybe you might, you might go into that, but it's 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 a funny thing because one of the one of the ways that poker players process 
well, they learn to distinguish between um, decision-making and results is there's a time for retrospectives and there's a time not for retrospectives. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, so I think the um, social banishment of bad beat stories has a lot to do with the fact that, okay, we're in, we're in a new space of going forward here. Let's not trade back, but maybe you could explain the, the concept and the culture of the bad beat story. Sure, sure. So, so a bad beat story um, is a story about how you should have won, but you didn't. So basically, you're you're a favorite, and then you suffer a bad beat. You know, the one of the classic ones is you know if you have aces and you get it all in against kings, and someone hits a king, and suddenly they knock you out. Well, that's a bad beat because your aces should win there, you know, a good amount of the time, around 75% of the time, right? Um, and, but sometimes they won't. Um, and a lot of people will then, you know, run off and say, I can't believe it. You know, I can't believe this happened. You know, my aces got cracked, whatever, whatever it is, and tell this bad beat story. And you hear a lot of bad beat stories. And the first time I really realized how bad that was um, and that it's really not something I should do it was very early on in my poker career. Um, I was playing a tournament and I flopped a set. So I hit I hit my miracle card on the on the flop and I thought that I was going to this was going to be great and I was going to have my first big tournament cash and I got called by a draw, and the draw completed, and I was knocked out of the tournament, and I was very upset. And Eric at the time was playing one of these high roller events that uh, you've referred to. I think it was a 25K. It might have been a 50K at the Aria. So I walked over, and he was on a break, and I started talking to him, and I started telling him this hand, and he just stops me. And I was like, but I'm not even done with the hand. And he he asks, he says, do you have a question about the hand? And I was like, well, no, I mean, I had a set and he's like, that's it. I don't want to hear anything else. It's like, we're, you were a favorite when the money went in and I don't care. I don't care how the hand ends. And he told me this, a phrase that has really just stuck with me, which is telling a bad beat story is like putting your trash on someone else's lawn and <laughs> such a good way of, of looking at it. But I, I actually think it goes a step further because what I realized, so he, he, made, he made me promise right then and there that I was never going to tell him about a hand unless I had a question about it, that I was basically never allowed to tell bad beat stories, no exceptions. Um, and sometimes it was really difficult because I really wanted to tell that bad beat story. But it's such a great habit because one of the other things he said, you know, we one of the main ways we've worked together is going through hands. You know, I'll talk through a hand with him. He'll talk through a hand he's played. We'll discuss hands that other people have played and just go through the decision process, go through the analysis, try to figure out, you know, what's going on. And he actually told me, I never care how the hand ends. I don't want you to tell me. I don't care about the outcome. We don't need to know that. We don't need to know what the other person had or, or any of this stuff, unless we're analyzing that specific player and trying to figure out how the player plays. Then it matters what they had, obviously. But normally, you know, the outcome doesn't matter. Just focus on the process. So I don't care if you won or lost. I care about the decision nodes, you know, where, where you were thinking about it. And it's such a powerful way of reframing things and thinking because I realize that it's 
Telling a bad beat story isn't just putting your trash on someone else's lawn. The fact that you retain the bad beat, you have that trash inside you. I mean, it's actually poisoning you. It's bad. It's noxious. And if you, if your mindset shifts to, okay, I just care about the process, not what ended up happening, it's this really empowering thing because you can fix the process. You can focus on what you did wrong. You can focus on your decision making. You can focus on your reactions. You you can't focus on the outcome. And over time, I actually found that I stopped remembering. Like my mind actually, that trash never stayed. It just went straight out. I actually don't remember most bad beats. I don't remember how I busted a lot of tournaments. Like I'll be out of the tournament and two hours later, I don't remember the hand unless it was an interesting hand. If it was an interesting hand, then I definitely remember it because there were decision processes. But if I got, you know, a set in and someone else ended up getting a flush, fine. You know, it happens. I don't remember. I'll forget it. It's not even in my mind. And I think that helps you grow. It helps you be much more positive. It helps you be much more resilient and it helps you think a lot better because you're not carrying all of this around. I think one of the best thinkers in poker has been uh, young Durr, Tom, Tom Dwan. <laughs> I don't know him. He's one of the ones that I never met. He, he did really teach a lot of, he was an early star, but also taught a lot of the, the early stars. And he, um, <clears throat> He was very good at separating process from results, but also very good about continuously questioning his own play mm -hmm. um, and about being straightforward where I was thinking this at the time and I made a mistake, mm -hmm. like being very open to uh, making mistakes. And in my uh, process in my in my development i i think going over hands with other players ha is is valuable to a point but there are also certain dangers in it so mm -hmm. i i try to teach um teach people to um recognize that there is cost as well as a benefit to going over hands um especially if you're in a habit of going over hands the the um one of the dangers is that you then don't experiment enough because you know that if you if you do something that is mistaken you'll be going over it later so you feel the need to defend your plays mm -hmm. as as you're making them which which can which can have a cost. So I w because Eric is the main character in your, in your story, I want to, I want to, uh, talk about Eric for a little bit. So, yeah. so decision-making under stress and uncertainty, this is what poker is teaching you mm -hmm. to a certain extent. If you're a longtime poker player, you're like a cortisol manager, you know, you've got, you've got cortisol, uh, going, going through your brain, doing its thing. And, and you, you have to manage it in the short term, making sure that it's not impacting your short term decision-making uncertainty. And you have to manage it over the long term, like making sure, okay, I'm staying healthy despite the fact that I'm playing this game where a lot of artificial stress is created. 
And then if you're at a tournament event, you have to say, okay, my schedule is that I'm playing these five tournaments. Uh, if event one doesn't go well, I don't want it affecting the other events. Mm -hmm. And and Eric is, well, we don't know. He's very calm in a hand. We assume that the short-term cortisol management is good, but it's also in the long-term, he's the best, maybe. Like, he's he is a, a, a calm, collected guy. Yeah. Over a long period of time. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, I can't understate how lucky I am that Eric is the person I ended up working with. I, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, let's be clear. Sure, I had, you know, he was the first person I approached and there was a reason I chose him. I'd looked at, you know, the longevity, a lot of these things that you've just talked about and that I write about in the book. I, I didn't really know that that was going to be the case, that he was someone who was so calm and collected. He seemed calm and collected on videos. You know, he wasn't screaming. He wasn't throwing tantrums. He wasn't calling people names. He wasn't doing anything. Like he was just very quiet always. He seemed like a nice guy. Um, and, but I just got so lucky because he not only kind of instilled his passion for the game, which is very pure in me, like he is motivated by the right things. He's not motivated by, you know, this is a fast way to make money. He understands it's a difficult game and he loves it and he loves what it teaches him. He loves kind of the process. So there's that element. But he also was just such a wonderful model of, yes, this kind of emotional stability of this ability to just remain calm and to just make good decisions and still be a and still be such a good person. Right. I had no idea that he, you know, that he has so many interests outside of poker. I had no idea kind of what he does and all of the all of the ways that he kind of makes life better for for other people. Um, that was just not not something I could have known. I had no idea that he loves theater and he loves restaurants and he loves music and he loves to support all of these different ventures. Um, and so so I think I was very lucky that I had him by my side. And, you know, him kind of whispering in my ear, one of the things he, he told me very early on. So when you were saying that, you know, there's, there's a cost to hand analysis where you, you're defending what you did, he actually made it very clear that I never had to be defensive, that mistakes are how you learn, that playing badly is how you learn, and that he doesn't care if I make a mistake. He cares that I have a reason for it. He, he cares about the fact that I'm actually thinking through things because you can figure out the strategy eventually, you know, here you, you really shouldn't be doing things like this because of X or Y. But if I'm thinking, that's the most important thing. And he also told me something very early on that became a guiding principle. And I think it's kind of one of these, one of the things that's one of his guiding principles that makes him so good, um, which was a very short phrase, less certainty, more inquiry. And it was just so powerful. I was like, my, my jaw dropped over, my jaw dropped open. And it's so funny because Eric has told me over and over, he's like, oh, I'm not a very eloquent person. I'm like, dude, you're the most, you're so eloquent. <laughs> you have all of these, just, you need someone like me following you around and, and, and actually noting them down because it was so beautifully put. And he was referring to a very good player. I, I won't say who, 
um, who'd been talking through a hand and like saying that this is what you do and this is what you do and this is what you do here. Um, and Eric just said, you know, less certainty, more inquiry. You can't be certain ever. You know, there's no right way to play a hand. How do you know something's a mistake? You know, you, you need to go through the entire process. You need to constantly inquire, be curious, be willing to change, be willing to grow, um, be willing to change your mind. And the fact that I had those words in my head and that I had his model of just calm demeanor and all of these things, I think, really helped set me up for a much more positive and healthy relationship with poker. Yeah, I love that. I love that phrase. That uh, so great. Yeah, I, I just want to paste it, you know, on my wall. Less certainty, more inquiry, because it applies to everything. And we just love certainty, and we want to be certain, and we want, you know, we want to be right. And that's just that open-mindedness is such a valuable attitude in life. With with Eric, um, there's there's a movement in the game towards analytical methods, computing power, the, the movement is very far advanced now and we have uh, solutions to certain idealized poker problems. And it, it certainly seems like uh, poker is moving towards being, um, if not solved, good approximate solutions for lots of tough, tough poker problems. And, and, and so, 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 Eric, what's interesting is he's in an environment where um, the game is increasingly moved towards that type of play, analytical methods, computing power, all that. But, but it's, it's never going to be entirely that because there, there are other aspects to the game. So, for instance, um, I want to talk about your chapter on um, on hand reading and body language and, and this sort of thing, because, because like in a particular problem, assume it's five years from now and the game is solved, right? The nature of the solution will be that in this situation, your bluffing frequency is X. Mm -hmm. Well, you still have to execute the bluff and people have to not be able to tell the difference between the times you're bluffing and, and not. And so, so Eric, um, there will be the, the reason it's always important to have less certainty and more inquiry is you could listen to someone who has a very cogent explanation of a hand based purely on the game theoretic example. But, but Eric in his experience has also played with people that maybe are the best readers of body language in the game. And yes. so he might lis listen to them explain a hand, very similar hand where they have an entirely different way of breaking it down that's also very smart and they have an entirely different game plan. And and so for Eric it's all about synthesizing all of those approaches. Yeah. So so not being like absolutely sure that that this yeah. is the answer. Um all right, take us to the the chapter where you uh make a full-on study of of body language. What did you learn there? Because uh, I wrote down the guy's the guy's name. I wasn't I wasn't familiar, but he he um, he does video analysis breakdowns. And he's probably he's probably going to be overbooked after after this. Book <laughs> Blake Eastman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there were two people who who I consulted about this. So Blake Eastman is the one you're referring to, and he's 
just undertaken this really cool project over the last few years um, where he has players play at RFID tables um, so you can see their cards. And he has a setup, you know, these are special tables where he can actually, he's taping everything. Um, and then he has both computers um, analyzing it and then he has independent coders um, and people looking at these hundreds of hours of footage, looking at things because he comes from the perspective, and which I fully agree with, um, because I think as a psychologist, this is how you this is how you do good experimental studies. And my last book was about con artists, um, where I learned that uh, it's very hard to tell when people are lying, especially if they're good at it, and you certainly can't see it in their face. Um, they don't even con artists don't even have. You know, the thing that's been so popularized in the last decade or so, micro expressions. You know, people say, oh, they're just these fleeting expressions. Well, those come from cognitive load. Those come from, you know, there being some sort of conflict. You don't actually know if it means that the person's lying or if they're stressed or any of these things. However, in good con artists, it's just totally absent because they live the lie. And it's the same of good bluffers, good poker players. You know, they're not stressed. As you said earlier, they're not stressed when they're bluffing. So I knew all of that. But if you want data that actually makes sense on behaviors, you need a lot of iterations. You need a lot of observation. You need to be able to discern the signal from the noise. Um, and otherwise, there's just too much noise. And you can't tell, oh, you know, this guy did that. Well, if I've only seen him do it once, that's not a large enough number. That's not a large enough sample. I need to do it over and over and over and observe. And if it keeps being predictive, okay, then maybe there's something there. So what Blake has done is actually look at all sorts of different players to try to see in aggregate, are there things that are generally predictive? Are there moments in time when people are less guarded? Are there certain kind of are there certain moments in a hand where you should really be looking? Which parts of the body? are generally most predictive. And he did an analysis of me. Um, he actually looked at videos of me playing um, and helped me see that, you know, I had tells that I didn't realize that I had, um, which is a really, I think it's a really wonderful thing to have someone show you. Yeah. It's, it's so, so easy, easy to be defensive, defensive when someone's pointing out problems problem. and say, no, you, you know, know, I was just tired. You know, I don't normally do that. But, but when you, when you kind of, and I, I had that reaction a few times. He's like, you did this. I'm like, but, okay, no, no, but I actually have to listen to what he's saying. Um, and I talked through a lot of it in the book for, in the interest of journalism <laughs> and in the interest of transparency. But that was really interesting, working with him and kind of seeing what he does and how he approaches tells, because it's very different from like saying something like, oh, you know, when someone looks up, it means they're bluffing. When someone looks left, it means this. Someone looks right. No, he is all about looking at behaviors over time and figuring out kind of what's predictive for this individual. And that I think is a, is a much better way of looking at it. But then I actually also talked to a psychologist, um, Michael Slepian, who did an analysis. He did some psych studies on poker players where he took videos of World Series of Poker main event players, um, and he had naive subjects who didn't know, you know anything about poker, and then he repeated it with people who did know stuff about poker and didn't really matter. Um, he had them look at different elements 
of the of the coverage and ask them a simple question you know does this person have a strong hand or not is this person is this person strong you know what what are they doing and he had three three conditions in one he just showed unfiltered video obviously no one could see the cards right that information wasn't there but you saw everything um just you know, from the waist up, the way that you normally see a, a, sh- a show, you, the way you'd normally see poker on TV. In another one, he had people just look at shoulders up, just look at the face. And that's what people normally do. You know, you, Brandon, you play at very high levels. You've got a lot of stares at the high rollers, people who just try to stare you down and figure out, you know, what's going on. I've played with some of those guys, and some of them can be very scary. <laughs> They just, they don't stop staring at you. Um, that happens actually more. There, I think there are more of the high roller players who have very scary, very scary stares than people at Oh, who's level. got the most scary stare? Well, it, it's so funny because I know all these people and I know they're not scary in, in real life. But I think, you know, someone like Stevie has a pretty scary and intimidating stare, which is very funny because he's the nicest guy. Um, but Stevie, uh, is Stephen Chidwick. He has a very intense stare. Alex Foxen has a very intense stare. You know, there are, and I know both of these people in real life and they're not, they're not like that normally, but they definitely do stare you down <laughs> to a very large extent. What about you? Who do you think has the scariest stare? Hmm, I've never given it much thought. I, I hmm, the scariest stare. <laughs> I actually... I've never paid, uh, so I don't know Tom Dwan and I've never played with him, but some in some of the videos, he seems to have some pretty intense stares too. No, most of the time he just looks at a, a point on the table. He I does, see. He doesn't generally look at a person. Um, yeah, you know, no, no, one, no one really comes no. to mind. All right, so it's just me. But anyway, so back to this study. So people just looked at faces. And then in a third condition, they actually just looked at below the shoulders, so at the arms and the hands. And he found that when you looked at the whole video, you were basically at chance, you know, 50-50, whether you were right or wrong, that the person had a strong hand or was bluffing. Um, And that's normal. So 50-50 is actually how we usually are at spotting deception. Normally, it's a coin flip, even for people who think they're very good at it. That's kind of the, generally, we're about 50-50. When people looked at the face only, they became much worse. They actually, their performance went down. So the face wasn't just predictive, it actually was harmful. And there are some other studies that I write about where people who looked at faces in poker actually made worse decisions because they were looking at, and this isn't Sleepian's work anymore, but they were looking at things like trustworthy, trustworthiness, and it screwed up with their thought process, and they actually made worse decisions when they looked at people's faces and how they looked, um, which was really interesting. I don't actually remember if I put that in the book or not, but it's really cool work. Um, it was a great chapter. And, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And then the people who just looked at the hands, they did the best. They actually performed well above chance. So they knew, even if they knew nothing about poker, just by looking at the hands, at how people handle chips and cards, they were able to tell if someone had a strong hand better than chance. And that was just so cool. And he replicated this many times. And then there's some unpublished stuff that he's been doing where he had people, you know, rate smoothness of gestures, etc. And it's so cool because normally, you know, how many poker players do you know who stare at people's hands? And 
are hands really the thing that you're controlling the most? Probably not. You know you're supposed to keep a poker face, but you're probably not nearly as aware of your hand gestures. And it's funny, when I was writing this chapter and writing all this stuff, part of me was saying, this is really interesting. And another part was saying, shit, you know, now other people are going to know this too. <laughs> and so they'll probably control their own behavior. But the thing about hands is that they're actually much more difficult to control. It's much more difficult to control your exact motions than it is to control your face muscles because we're not used to doing it. Um, so learning things like that was just really interesting because it's a totally different way of figuring out what behavior means, what tells look like, because you're not going from your intuition, oh, this is what a liar looks like. You're actually going from from data. You're actually going from, you know, what actually, which body part, if you just show it to random people, predicted whether or not they could tell that the hand was uh, strong or weak. And that's really cool. I don't think anyone would have necessarily predicted the results of that study in advance, especially poker players. It accords with my own experience. Um, my, my view on tells is that you're, you're really, what you would love to know is what's going on inside the body in terms of adrenal reaction, in terms of sure. cortisol, heartbeat. That's what you would really love to know. Um, so what, what I'm doing is really looking for credible signals about what's going on to adrenal levels. And mm -hmm. there, there aren't always situations where it corresponds exactly adrenal levels, strength and weakness, but there are some situations where it does. Um, so one clear example where it does is if, if they, they are surprised that they've hit a big hand at a big moment, the adrenaline's yeah. always going to go up at that time. Like, you know, you have seven, seven in your hand and it's a big pot. I re-raised you, you call and the flop comes King seven, seven. Everyone's going to get real excited and, and it's, it's going to be hard for you to control your adrenaline if it's a very important spot. So, so if I'm playing against you, it's, it's which signals <clears throat> credibly represent, uh, high adrenal, high cortisol levels in, yeah. in the body and hands are very good there. Yes. So, so if you're Absolutely. looking at a, a beginning poker player, um, often like if they go to re-raise you and the hands are a little shaky, that, that means like aces or kings, like it's just so much <laughs> adrenaline, they can't help, the hands are a little shaky when they're putting out the chips, like that's just- Oh, that happened to me when I was just starting out, for sure. Yeah, that that's like, just a classic- Hands, stop shaking. <laughs> that's, a, that's a classic uh, tell. And I've always personally, uh, not been a chip shuffler because I've always believed that that would, that's a hard thing to, uh, meld with minimal tells. Like, why would you yeah. be engaged in the chip shuffling and playing around? I'm completely with and, you for two reasons. One, it gives, gives a, a lot of information away and two chips are dirty. Touch them as infrequently as humanly possible. Please continue. <laughs> and I also, um, I have a habit, which most players find annoying, which is I, I actually keep my hands still and I cover the cards and it's, it's more of like a trembling hand, perfect equilibrium. Like if someone's uh, marking the cards or something, I always, they can't see the cards. So I, I have like one edge out, but otherwise like they can't see the cards. Um, and that's just a habit that I've picked up over time, but smart, but I think that, um, 
I think ideally what you're looking for is credible signals of adrenaline. And it makes sense to me that hands are a one, but for some, obviously in the high rollers, the scarves and stuff have become popular because having the neck vein go off yep. is another one, all sorts of pulse things. Absolutely. But I have to say, you also have to figure out what does adrenaline mean for this person? Does this person get really, especially at the high, you know, when is the adrenaline kicking in? Is it when they have a strong hand or is it when they're bluffing? Is it when they really want to get called or they really don't want to get called? Because it can actually go both ways. And I think it can be different from player to player. So I think that's the second part of the equation that you need to answer if you haven't played with this person before. Um, so I think that that's also really important. Have you... Do you find that as well, or do you think that that's not? Yeah, definitely. Um, one difference between the shot clock tournaments and, say, big cash games or the old days when you didn't have a shot clock is that you've you've seen a lot of hands, like, say, in high-stakes poker and so forth, where where they wait it out. Mm-hmm. And that's disappeared with the with the shot clock, because if it, if you're talking about a 30 second or a 60 second, maybe you have a couple of extensions, but it's basically a pretty quick decision. It's not enough time, but right. the, the tell rationale for waiting it out. If it's say a huge cash game decision is that a lot of players are, it can be difficult to tell in the first 60 seconds, whether they're bluffing or value. Mm-hmm. But if you wait it out for like five minutes, they become calmer if they have value and they become more stressed if they're bluffing. So that's like the rationale in a cash game for waiting it out. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. In a tournament, I mean, you can still possibly get that effect, but it's 30, 60 seconds. It's not enough sure. time. Um, sure. And you, and you can get some confusing signals. Um, so if it, is there anyone that you're continuing to work with that there, or it was, a, it was, a, I'm sure it's quite expensive. So it was probably like a, like a one-time project. What would you, I'm sure Eric asked you for some advice. Like who do you, who are you sending people to in terms of, uh, if they want to spend a thousand bucks or so and learn about. No, I actually think, I, I think Blake is a great person to, uh, to go to, I was going to when we were, when we had just, this was back in January, um, he'd relocated to Vegas and had like this whole setup going there. So I was going to go and do a, another analysis at his actual special tables because I hadn't done that. I'd only, he'd only ever watched televised footage of me playing. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, COVID struck and we haven't been able to do that, but, but I'd love to, because I think it's so valuable. You know, we are just, I think everyone, it's, it's so difficult to not be kind of hubristic about your own abilities and to say, oh, you know, well, I don't really need this. You know, I don't, I don't give off tells, like I'm very good at doing this. I'm very good at doing that. Um, But I think you, you just, coaching is always good. Like, I didn't think I needed a mental coach. I ended up working with you know, Jared Tendler, who's a mental coach. I There's so many things that you don't really think you need, but then they're so helpful when when you use them because you can always improve and there are always things to work on. And it's always just good to get an external perspective. So So yeah, I think that reading some of this literature and just figuring out, you know, how do you 
go about analyzing these sorts of situations? How do you go about, you know, what's a good strategy for for thinking about this? And when do you not want to do it? You know, when when is it actually probably counterproductive? Um, and one other thing, by the way, that that I've learned in in working with Blake is never try to do fake tells. I mean, it just not only does it not work, but it just screws you up. Try to keep things simple. A lot of people try to do fake reverse tells. Um, and usually it's it's very easy to see through that. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you read uh, some of the old books by Joe Navarro? He had some. Oh, I did. I did. I've read some of the Navarro stuff. I have, uh, you know, Mike Caro's Book of Tells. I've I've read all of that. And oh my God, that book with with its photographs. It's oh, Joe, yeah. <laughs> it was funny. One time I was playing in a cash game, and and there was a there was a big pot, and. A friend of mine is pretty funny. He, he all of a sudden started, he looked under the table and he was looking <laughs> under the table for an extended period. And this was a, th- this was a good nature group. And everyone was like, what are you doing? And he's like, he's like, I just read this book by Joe Navarro. He told me that I've got to look at their feet <laughs> because if they're, if they're bluffing, their feet are moving, like they're going to run away. And I was like, <laughs> It was really funny. That's really funny. That's really funny. Well, it's so funny because some of that stuff, um, you know, some of the Navarro stuff, some of my Caro stuff does hold up um, in a general sense because, you know, the the whole, you know, weak means strong, strong means weak. That's, yes, that's very, that's very basic, but that actually holds up sometimes. I had an experience that I write about in the book where I was playing against this this guy who'd just been like, bluffing me. He's this older Russian, and I hadn't had very positive experiences with them. Um, was this in this Monaco? Was, this was in, yeah, this was in Monte Carlo. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're on the, we're on the river, he's all in, and I'm trying to figure out whether to call or not. And, you know, I have, I have top pair, but, you know, this, this is a big hand, and he's been bluffing me just all day relentlessly. And like I said, you know, he's an older Russian man and they love to bluff me. They don't like, you know, they, they love to take advantage of girls at the table. And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, Oh my God, I guess I have to call. And then he stands up and starts like doing a little dance. (laughs) (laughs) And like, Oh my God, you know, that's just, that's like tells 101. <laughs> like this guy is not bluffing. And I ended up calling uh, because he also called the clock on me, which really screwed me up. It was the first time someone had ever called the clock on me. And and I was, and he, of course he had, he had a monster um, and I lost a lot of chips, but it was just so funny. I mean, you don't have to be an expert in tells to see that this guy standing up and literally doing a little jig behind his chair at the table probably isn't bluffing but somehow i just out leveled myself and decided i had to call yeah i can remember one one famous hand uh where that happened in the in the main event that someone did it and and someone with kings almost folded um but as you said it it is somewhat reliable but you can't necessarily read into it 100 now did, did you come across any um body language savants in the poker world? Any people that you thought were especially talented at reading body language? You know, I think some of the some of the best players are, are very good at it. I think Eric is actually very good at it. 
Um, and he he doesn't want you don't know it necessarily um but he's very good because he's so attentive and he has so much experience i mean few people have as much experience in tournament poker as eric does he's been playing at the highest level since the 80s and constantly right it's not like he took a few years off here and there if you look at his hendon mob it's insane he's got final tables you know in every single year and first place finishes and all of these things so he's very good um someone else who was very good who is just you know, such such a fun guy, such an interesting character is Lucky Chewy, Andrew Lichtenberger, who's also incredibly attentive. He's just someone who is, I mean, so in the zone, so zen and just like, and he calls it in the flow of the game. It's so funny to hear him talk about it. You know, he's talking about the flow of energy between players and all of this stuff. And he's right. Like it actually, he's very good at spotting it. And then he stays out of trouble um, and he it's so fun to watch him play because he can seem so passive. And then all of a sudden he just strikes. And it, that doesn't mean he has a monster hand. He just figured out when to make a perfectly timed move. And so so he's very good. Um, and then some of the I think there are some other players who you wouldn't necessarily think of, but who are very good, like. Like I said, I, I've um, become quite friendly with um, Alex Foxen, and we have played together sometimes. And he's very good at picking up on tells. And we've talked about players, you know, afterwards. And he will say things like, you know, did you notice that, you know, whenever he re-raised with like weak hands, he did this. And whenever he did it with strong hands, he did that. Um, so he's very good at picking up on things like that. I think that's probably one of the reasons he's become such a formidable tournament player um in the last few years it is uh it is fun when you come across someone that is uh special at making reads i i found it remarkable there are actually very few people that are that are exceptional mm -hmm. at the in the high levels of play like because the experience base is what it is um the general level is very high like mm -hmm. the general ability to pick up on things. Um, but there are very few people that I would view as especially talented. I've heard that Phil Ivey is very good at it, but I've never played with him, so I don't have any personal experience of that. I I have played with him a good bit. Um, I haven't necessarily seen enough to put him... I would put Daniel in the category before I would put Phil in the mm -hmm. category because Daniel is very talented at reading people. Um, and it's sort of like not a popular answer because it's, it's well known back in the ESPN days, they would just sort of sample the the ones that he got right and stuff like that. Um, sure. But he is genuinely uh, talented. And... Um, Kenny Tran, who used to play a lot of big games, I would say he's he's uh, the closest I've seen to a to a full on savant. Patrick's pretty good. Patrick is very good. I love Patrick. Can I give a big shout out to Patrick? Patrick is wonderful. Oh yeah, you have to send him a book because he's in the book. You have to. He is uh, in the book. Hi, Patrick. You're in the book. I forgot to send you a book. Yeah, you need to. You need. To you've send one. you've become part of my poker vocabulary. Eric and I use you as a catchphrase. Oh, <laughs> uh, what would Patrick do? Um, no, Patrick mode. Oh, Patrick mode. 
which is yeah. like which is like focused or, or or what no which is going crazy on the bubble oh nice which nice. is abusing people on the bubble um okay so because nobody wants to bubble something that, that patrick taught me <laughs> yeah especially in the in the like in the main, in the event, main event and the important stuff yeah the main event is the most most important bubble period because so many people got in through satellites and and more yeah. importantly so many people are reporting home about what's happening and and they are reporting to all yep. their friends and it's it's definitely the number one uh bubble tournament so i really only have one one more question we've yeah. gone over my a lot of time i was um it's interesting that your your previous book confidence game studied con artists how did you get into that the honest answer yeah um is that i watched david mamet's um house of games and which is a great movie um that i highly recommend and i mean david mamet is obsessed with con artists he has so many movies about cons but this particular one i i'd never seen it before and it featured this female protagonist who was a psychologist who had just written this best-selling book um, and she was actually a clinical psychologist, so someone who sees patients and who should really understand human nature. And she winds up at the center of this huge con. Um, and kind of the twist is she thinks she's in on it. She thinks that she's learning about this world. And really, she's the the target. I won't ruin it for people who, um, who've never seen the movie. But if you know David Mamet's work, I mean, it doesn't end well. <laughs> this is not this is not a happy ending. Everyone gets to uh, go home with everything um, type of movie. And when I saw it, I was actually I was really intrigued. I thought, wow, this is not the type of person you normally see as a victim of a con artist. Um, normally, you know, in, not just in fictional depictions, but just in general in news stories and all these things, you see you see people. And you, you you see the victims as kind of sometimes even denigrated a little bit, you know, oh, you can't fool an honest man, no, oh, they're so gullible, so greedy, so stupid, all of these, all of these negative things. Um, and you don't normally see kind of this very accomplished, smart person who falls for a con. And I was very intrigued and I hopped on the computer after finishing that movie and thought, I want to read a little bit more about this. You know, how often do smart people become the victims of con artists? How, how does this actually happen? And I couldn't find anything. I couldn't actually find what I wanted to read. Um, and so I went down a three-year rabbit hole that became the confidence game. Very nice. Very nice. And uh, unfortunately, you predated Madoff, right? No, no. I, I actually, so I have a few sentences about Madoff. It was going on at the same time, but I tried, I made a conscious choice to write about cons that um, were less covered in the media that people didn't really know about to try to do some more original reporting. Um, and there was just so much going on. There were books about Madoff. So um, he, I think he's in one sentence, but I actually, when it comes to Ponzi schemes, um, I wrote about the some of the original Ponzi schemes that even predated Ponzi. So I guess my question, one thing I'm interested in is with the, there's, a bit of a poker lap, poker world and that world, because the poker world, the places that you're going to, Vegas, LA, and the crowd, it's a very, it's a very 
hustle heavy crowd if Absolutely. not if if not directly involving uh confidence men there's it's a hustle heavy world yes and, and so <laughs> and so um when i when i reflect on my long experience in poker one thing that i often try to sort out is um having the long experience of observing and i'm one to really like sit back and observe i don't really get it i, I i'm like eric in that regard i'm like a sit back and watch and mm -hmm. not and play it very carefully um but you learn and um what you learn is very good defensive skills like you do get um you do develop a hustle radar that is quite good. <laughs> um, but one thing I often wonder about is what are the costs and benefits of the hustle radar? Because on the one hand, you learn like a certain set of defensive skills that serve you well because you're playing defense against these hustles, which let's, let's be honest, the whole society is moving towards that world. Yep. Like, if you don't have a good hustle radar, you're in trouble because it's the whole world, unfortunately, moves in that direction, which is quite scary. Yeah. Um, and social media, of course, plays into it. Um, but so there's a benefit to developing a hustle radar, as no doubt you did with writing these books and playing all these things. But there's also a cost because sure. you lose some of that uh childish like let's do it let's let's go yep and and i wonder what what you have to say or what you've learned about about yeah. the cost you lose a certain like when you show up as a freshman in college you're like yeah let's do it let's go like it doesn't yeah. matter what the idea is that that sort of style and it's frankly more fun right yeah yeah so you know i um went through this period when i finished writing the confidence game so i'd spent multiple years doing, you know, doing research and spending time with con artists with their victims. And it was quite depressing, actually, on, on a lot of levels, I tried to make the book not depressing. Um, but you know, it's, it weighs on you when you see these people who've ruined lives, and when you see the lives that have been ruined. And I just emerged from it thinking, Oh, my God, you know, I can't trust anyone, just lock the door, throw away the key. And I had to get over it because I realized that that's a horrible way to live because that just saps you of kind of one of the most essential things of, of what it means to be human. It saps you of kind of hope and optimism and all of these good things. That's what con artists take advantage of. They take advantage of the fact that we're hopeful people, that we want, you know, a better world. They take advantage of our good impulses, not our bad impulses, sometimes the bad impulses, but in general of the good impulses that we have. And so shutting yourself off to all of that means shutting that off in yourself. And that's, that's a horrible cost. And, you know, Ricky Jay said this very eloquently. So I want to misquote him because I don't remember the exact words. Um, he gave an interview to the New York Times at one point, And he said something along the lines of, I wouldn't want to live in a world where I couldn't be conned, because that would be 
a world where you couldn't believe in anyone or anything. And I think that that just sums it up and it's so powerful and it's so true. You know, I don't want to live in that world either because I want to live in a world where there are, where you can believe in things, where you can forge connections, where you can be hopeful and optimistic and, you know, hope for a better world and hope for a better existence. And, you know, I, I think you do need to have a good radar. Um, so what I've tried to do is just use the journalistic mantra and apply it to everything. Trust, but verify. Your first, your initial reaction shouldn't be, I distrust everyone. It should be trust, but then verify. Always verify and really verify. Be aware of your biases. Be aware that you, know, you have confirmation biases, that you're going to look for you know, evidence that you're right rather than evidence that you're wrong. Be aware of selection effects. Be aware of all of that. Um, and so try to verify in as objective a fashion as you can. It's hard. It's much easier said than done. But to me, that's the best way forward. Stay open, stay curious, stay hopeful and excited. But whenever you're about to make a big decision or whenever you're kind of entering into a new relationship with a, with a person, be it, you know, romantic or not, or business or a friendship, you know, just do your homework and, and ask questions that you might not want to ask because at the end of the day, the costs of being wrong are quite high. It seems like very wise advice. <laughs> well, um, with that, I will tell everyone to go out and buy The Biggest Bluff, which comes out on June 22nd. Is that right? 23rd. 23rd. Okay, June 23rd. Yes. Um, and hopefully this pod will come out before then, but we will see. All right. And I am deeply appreciative of the time. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Okay, I'll see you soon.